Welcome to the ILG podcast. Today we're going to be discussing mental capacity and its implications for direct payment recipients and individual employers. I'm David Ashley and I work for Markbase Limited and Independent Living Group. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self-Directed Support Forum Organising Committee for over 15 years. My name is Rachel Harkin, I'm the Head of Employment Advice Services at Independent Living Group Trading as ILG Support. I'm passionate about ensuring that individual employers get support by any means possible, but for the purposes of our podcast conversations, I'm going to be coming at it from the legal perspective with a special focus on employment law. The content of this podcast is for general advice only. For specific cases, always seek legal advice. Right, um, let's get let's get stuck in then. Preparing for today, what I've been thinking about is historically the kind of ability to manage a direct payment, um, you know, and the, the sort of capability around kind of taking on the obligations of being an employer, the sort of thing I talk about in workshops quite a lot, um, alongside the capacity to understand it. And it's something that I think in social care and direct payments, capacity is, um, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of kind of talk around capacity from a social care perspective. You know, we have the Mental Capacity Act, which is all about not assuming um, somebody lacks capacity, making, protecting somebody's liberty and ability, you know, and and kind of option, if you like, to make a bad decision. And, and that's fantastic. And the principles of the mental capacity are really important. So from a social care perspective, I think capacity is, um, you know, covered. And, and, and when direct payments, people are referred for direct payments to be an employer, capacity will be on a social worker's mind. I think less so the ability or, or capability or, yeah, to manage being an employer and what that really means, I think, is... Um, something that traditionally isn't focused on so much and except from a direct payment advisor's perspective where they're given the time to do it um so i think for today historically though that's our sort of that's how i come into this into this debate and this conversation really just with that in mind that capacity is if we look at capacity as being the ability to make a decision um and understand what that what the kind of implications of that are and there are kind of very clear guidelines around assessing somebody's capacity to make certain decisions and we mustn't assume that somebody doesn't have capacity, etc. But ability and the kind of a framework to assess somebody's ability to be an employer um, is quite lacking and is, is missing. There isn't anything we can point to that um, is why I think we get this kind of we are where we are with regards to, to direct payments. Um, so that's kind of my opening thoughts on it, Rachel. I don't know where where that leads you or where you're coming at it from. I completely agree. I mean, over the years, we have struggled a little bit when we've had cases where it's quite clear there's a problem with an employee and the employer either didn't have capacity at all or maybe even the capacity fluctuated. It, it throws us, when we're thinking about employment law specifically, it's rather baffling. Why on earth would you give somebody a direct payment if they're not capable of managing these things, if they're not capable of taking advice and guidance and so on? So could you, David, explain to me then what exactly is the framework for giving a direct payment to somebody 
who lacks mental capacity. Yeah, no, I'll try to. And I think, I say, for the purposes of today, we'll focus on the English regs. So, but, we, you know, safe in the knowledge that the, the kind of regulations in the SDS regs in Scotland and the Wellbeing Act in, in Wales are, are roughly similar and, and certainly follow the same principles. Although that is something I think we need to do in futures. We will. We've discussed it and we're picking out the differences. But for today, we're, we're going to use the Care Act and the English regs as our, as our foundation. Um, and what we have in England is t- um, two sets of, of, of kind of uh, legislation via the Care Act and some regulations via the Care and Support Direct Payments Regs 2014. And that's our kind of benchmark here. And um, so the Direct Payment Regs reference Section 32 of the Care Act, which is all about adults without capacity requesting direct payments. And it's very, very clear, actually, the framework's very good. The adults who lack capacity um, are able to request to the local authority um, to meet their needs by making direct payment, um, or somebody can make that request on their behalf. The local authority is in a position, has a power to make direct payments to people who lack capacity. But there are uh, five conditions, effectively, that must be met. And if we look at those conditions, it's quite clear that um, were they always followed, I think we wouldn't experience too many problems. So we know there's some pressure because the conditions are quite clear. Um, If the authorised person isn't already authorised by the Mental Capacity Act to act on their behalf, the local authority has to satisfy themselves that that person uh, will act in the person's best interest in arranging the uh, care and support and um, satisfied that the authorised person similarly is capable of managing direct payments. So the the Care Act says explicitly that the local authority to make a direct payment to someone who lacks capacity must identify a suitable person and satisfy themselves that that suitable person is capable of managing direct payment on behalf of the person who lacks capacity. Um, and an overall condition that the local authority, yeah, is just simply satisfied that making direct payments to the authorised person is an appropriate way to meet the needs in question. And that's something that comes up over and over again, actually, in the Care Act and in the DP regs is this the local authority must be satisfied that making the DP is appropriate. There are some kind of interesting bits and pieces in the, in the Care Act and the DP regs that, that do, do allow for some kind of proper assessment on the part of local authority. But that's what we're relying on here um, is time, resource and proper assessment that there is somebody uh, that it's appropriate to make the DP and an authorised person, a suitable person is in place and able to uh, manage those responsibilities so in theory you shouldn't find an employer on direct payments who lacks capacity without a suitable person who is who would be deemed uh, appropriate to manage but we know that isn't the reality and i think what so to put it into context very quickly i know that back in the day very early in direct payments when personal budgets were introduced there was a very um there was a, a uh, KPI, so a uh, I'm trying to think, why can't I think what KPI stands for? Um, KPI, help me out, Rachel. KPI, yeah, key performance. Indicator. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to leave this in. We'll leave that in, shall we? Because I just had a mental block on KPI, but there were you had to get I think 33% of eligible people in receipt of social care budget or packages you had all local authorities had to get 33 percent on a on a personal budget and the majority of personal budgets were direct payments so that there was a lot of pressure to get people on direct payments so i think one of the things we did see throughout the last decade was a a kind of fallout from that was 
perhaps the assessment I mean it was pre-care act to be honest but it was still there was still a requirement for people to have appropriate suitable people managing and we know that lots of direct payments were set up in you know to get to meet this target and 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 we also know that direct payments can be set up for somebody who lacks capacity the PA is going in as a managed account provider it can work until something goes wrong until there's a requirement to do something which is why we see it and you see it at ILG support so I think there's a lot of cases like that historically, and there was a, there was a kind of a lot of pressure to get people on direct payments, and also not just the KPIs. I think quite often there isn't a, a better alternative. And what social workers want to do, quite rightly, and local authorities want to do, is create the best environment for somebody to live independently and and, and have a chance at having you know not being pigeonholed with a very sort of traditional service that doesn't offer them much choice and control. So it's balancing out all of those things. I think creates an environment where a certain percentage of direct payment employers won't have the safety nets in place or a suitable person in place to manage some of those situations that, that come up. And that's why I think when they come to you at IOG Support, they are you're really up against them because you're going to find those cases, something's gone wrong, the, the relationship between the PA is broken down, whatever's happened. And there just isn't a person acting as an employer. I mean, my question to you would be, what what are the conditions we're looking for from an employment law perspective? What does what are the implications from an employment law perspective? Does it does it work to have you know how does this what does it make? What's the starting point there? What do you need for an employment relationship? I think we have to recognise that employment law has its foundation in contract law, essentially. So we need to see that a contract has been legally formed. You need to have an offer, acceptance and consideration, which essentially is the thing in exchange, the promise that's in exchange um, between the two parties. But of course, one of the other major requirements is that there has to have been an intention to create legal relations in order for it to be a contract at law. And that's where we struggle then. If somebody hasn't had the mental capacity to be able to formulate that intention to create legal relations you will not see an employment contract in existence or certainly not with that person in particular great thanks rachel so we know then that this intention to create legal um, legal relations is important two parties with capacity is the least you would expect to to, to have a employment relationship so what happens then when you you get a core ilg support from a direct payment advisor uh, in relation to uh, a problem between with a PA, let's say, and a direct payment recipient who we discover lacks capacity, um, and the DP has kind of been operating on a kind of automatic basis via a managed account, but there's a real employment law issue between the PA well, with the PA. Um, how do you how do you what how what, how do you deal with that? Where do you start? Well, it's tricky, you see, because the reality is this employee has continued to work and the continue to provide the care they've continued to be paid so somebody somewhere down the line has got to take responsibility for the employment law obligations um and i think really the best way to explain uh, the process i suppose is to have a look at a case that was heard in an employment uh, an employment tribunal and that's the case of xenonos so in this particular case the person in receipt of the care we're going to call l was a 46-year-old with a learning disability, required 24-hour care, was autistic and deaf and blind. 
was able to read to the level of the line witch in the wardrobe, but not able to understand legal proceedings. What is fascinating, actually, is that the judge recognised that in the judgment itself and said that Elle would not be able to understand the legal proceedings. In fact, there had been no contact with the Court of Protection, there was no lasting power of attorney in place, um, and no litigation friend had been appointed. Nobody stepped forward to take that role. L was, in fact, not even aware of the legal proceedings. So it's a really interesting case that goes all the way to hearing when the main respondent, the employer, according to payroll and and the PAYE scheme, doesn't even know that they're being sued. But in the judgment, the judge says as follows. In these very difficult circumstances, I have decided that despite the risk to the first respondent, that's L, our employer, so to speak, of continuing with proceedings, which she is incapable of understanding, about which she knows nothing, and where there is no one present, available, and or willing to represent her interests. Weighing up the factors in the overriding objective, it is appropriate to continue with this hearing. So that, that's telling us then, if I'm wrong, that the, the legal process, at least as far as the tribunal is concerned, will go ahead in these circumstances, despite there being no employer to speak of with capacity to uh, defend themselves for not acting or acting inappropriately. Absolutely. So what the judge has done then, they've considered all of the evidence that's been put forward by the council, who were the funding authority, by payroll, by the family. They've considered all of the factors. And what they need to get at is what we just said before about the fundamental requirements of there being an employment contract in existence. When was there a contract formed? When did you have an offer acceptance and an understanding of consideration? What point did the contract form? Who had the intention to create legal relations? Now, in this particular case, I believe the claimant, uh, Mazenonos, took over from a family member and it just carried on. The conversation had originally happened with the social worker. So I'm quite happy to take on this care work and the social worker put the wheels in motion to make that happen via a direct payment. So just reading again from the judgment, which we don't tend to do very often, but I just think that these are particularly interesting paragraphs and really help to demonstrate the judge's reasoning behind the outcome. Cutting to the chase, in this particular case, it was the council who were deemed to be the employer and took all of the responsibility for the employment law obligations and the claim. So the judge says, on the basis of the claimant's evidence, the council, uh, sorry, the contract, On the basis of the claimant's evidence, the contract was in fact made between the claimant and the council. The key conversation took place at the interview with the social worker. It was as a direct result of that interview that the employment contract started. I find that the contract was in fact entered into in that interview. There is very little evidence about what was actually said in that interview, but it is plain that the two real parties to the contract reached agreement then. The council then led Elle's family into a structure that made it appear that Elle was the employer and indeed the family appear to have accepted that this was the case and have acted accordingly and guided by, uh, by the council 
at least until the problem of the claim arose. Although there was a payroll provider, they were involved, they retained, the council retained ultimate supervision over the claimant's wages and the proper use of the funding. Although the family provided daily supervision, ultimate supervision for Elle's well-being in the claimant's care lay with the second respondents, that's the council, through its social workers. The fact that the council was able to make and implement a decision to claw back the remaining funds in the bank account demonstrates that notwithstanding what appeared on the face of the pay slips, the P60s, correspondence with HMRC and the service agreement with the payroll providers, real financial control, in fact, vested in the council. Wow. And that's so clear, isn't it? And I know over, over the years, there's so much concern from funding bodies about you know, ending up liable in these cases. And here we have it very, very clear um, that there's a real danger that you may end up liable. And I think uh, reading between the lines and what I know of this case from reading it in the past is that I think we've got wages and redundancy payment and you've got this PA and we've got, I think, a managed account provider. So the council have set that up. They've helped to recruit the PA and interviewed the PA, set it all up, got the management account going, timesheets going into managed account provider, PA being paid. Anyone listening to this who works in direct payments will recognise this, will know that have been involved in cases like this, will know probably know cases that are happening right now like this, as I'm sure you get calls. I think you actually said before, automatically, those words came from you because Mm. that's how you're recognising that process from the direct Mm. payment side. It's almost automatic. Absolutely, absolutely. And it will, and and, you know, it will serve a purpose and it's a concern. Because what, what, I guess this case is a good thing because we have some authority then to say, look, you really, you know, possibly it's not a good idea. You want to review your cases and have a look at them because you don't want to end up liable. Um, in this case, it was a redundancy and wages claim. Presumably, other things could, could go wrong. We could see much bigger claims that are not so, uh, more open-ended, perhaps discrimination elements to a claim or some, something bigger that, that, that really causes a problem for a local authority. I'm not. I'm not convinced all local authority legal teams are are familiar with this problem until until one occurs, you know, on their on their doorstep. Well, a slightly more challenging set of circumstances because, in some respects, the Zenonos case has given us a clear indication as to what happens when it's obvious capacity wasn't there from the outset. Rather more challenging is what happens when actually there's been a deterioration in the service user's capacity, or perhaps. It fluctuates even, you know, people's condition changes over the course of time. Uh, I have found historically that just the mere fact of there being a dispute with the PA, uh, whether it's legal proceedings or even prior to that point, can put immense amounts of stress on the person in receipt of the direct payment and they struggle to cope with it. In turn, that means that we struggle to get instructions. They struggle to communicate with us. Perhaps they won't be able to give instructions to a solicitor. And it's worth noting, of course, that anybody in a position of responsibility needs to carry out a mental capacity assessment. A solicitor before taking on a client is actually in a position where they have to do a capacity assessment to make sure that the individual is capable of making decisions, retaining information and so on, the the criteria that you set out earlier, David. 
So actually, that causes us a problem. Perhaps the direct payment was set up correctly, but things have changed. So is there anything in the direct payment framework that can help with that problem? Uh, well, yeah, there is. I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, before I come on to the main one, I think, you know, that the CARE Act, if, if, if you ever have time to read it, is really clear and a fantastic piece of legislation on paper when it comes to assessment and when it comes to assessing somebody, um, person-centred assessment, really trying to understand where they're at, what their, what their kind of goals are, their capability, what they want to achieve, what their needs are. And, and that assessment, it's about good social work. But, and this isn't to say that social workers aren't doing the work. It's about, I think, much more to do with them being resourced to do the work and having the time, sufficient time to do the work and assess people properly. Because that is the starting point of any direct payment package is the assessment, somebody, what they need and what they're able to manage and what they want to achieve. And the better that assessment is, the less likely you're going to get, you know, a good assessment would identify someone's needs are deteriorating or someone's needs fluctuate and it would build in contingency to, to, to kind of account for that. Um, and actually that should instruct whether or not the local authority, to go back to our earlier point, deems a direct payment to be suitable. Because if, if somebody is deteriorating or their um, capacity is fluctuating, then that's a reason to find another person who might manage those responsibilities for them and to build in a system that accounts and, as I say, accounts for that. Um, so the system does, and, and the kind of framework we have, should in theory account for it. It, it, it clearly it's not in, in lots of cases. Um, but more, more kind of basic response, I guess, is this requirement. You know, within the direct payment regs and the Care Act, very, very clear. Local authority must conduct a review for ascertaining whether the making of direct payments is appropriate to meet the adults' needs at least once within the first six months of the direct payments being made. So that's, you know, gives you, within the six months, you should be reviewing it. Is it working? That's an opportunity to pick up something you may have missed. If somebody has deteriorated, you know, and you've not seen that coming in the assessment, um, you've got an opportunity to pick it up quite early and see how things are working. But then after that, you must review in intervals not exceeding 12 months thereafter. Interesting wording, not exceeding. Again, about resource. If you knew somebody was in that category and you said, okay, we're going to try a direct payment, but let's, we are aware that, that their condition is such that there is a deterioration, you might decide to review much more frequently than that and keep an eye on it and keep an eye on what's going on. And that, that's in an ideal world what the, would be happening. And it's what the regulations say should be happening. Um, you know, that the local authority exercises some discretion. Um, in respect of reviews and, and, and kind of and, and, re, and, 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 and keeps a check on it. That's what should happen. We know, unfortunately, reviews don't happen particularly frequently. And some reviews we know anecdotally, you know, there are little clues about reviews. And some, if, if I know from kind of say anecdotally, that some reviews, they pick up the old assessment or the last review and they'll re reference something like the old facts criteria, which is a little clue that, that somebody hasn't been reviewed for a number of years because the eligibility criteria has changed significantly from the time they were last reviewed. So we know for a fact, and I can think of a case you and I were asked to discuss a few months ago where through a variety of circumstances, we had an employer who lacked capacity and as it turned out, probably hadn't had capacity in any meaningful sense for a number of years, but had been on a direct payment and the PA, the main PA had effectively been quasi managing that, which was fine up until the point at which that it wasn't. And we had, we had a real problem. I guess there's a, a need and a desire to want to keep 
going with a care package that for all intents and purposes is working. I know that the focus isn't going to be on social workers to be thinking ultimately whether or not this person can face legal proceedings or a dispute with the PA. Ultimately, um, they're going to be thinking, let's just keep this going. If everything's going smoothly, leave it be, presumably. It's just, I can't help but communicate how difficult that is when things really do go wrong. That's the concern. Uh, It's a legitimate concern. It really is. Because... Yeah, I've mentioned it and I, and I, t- I find myself, I am like a broken record sometimes, but I think it's because certain issues won't go away because they are important. People, you know, have a right to a proper person-centred assessment and, you know, a uh, an assessment of their needs within the criteria and, they, and, and, and the option for direct payments and to, to receive their support in the most uh, flexible way possible via direct payment. And Everybody wants that, and, and, and people are working to achieve that for people so they can live as independently as possible. Um, to balance that, there needs to be um, a good framework, legislative framework, which we have, but that needs to be, um, yeah, it needs, it needs, I say, there needs to be resource to allow that legislative framework to, to operate in the way it's supposed to. And unfortunately, I think what we do see is um, corners are cut uh, because resources just simply aren't there. And actually, what's there, there is also often a what's the better option? And the better option for some people is to live independently. And 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 I think it's really really tricky. We 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 as you know you in your role at IOG support have a are picking up, and us as as the insurance end up picking up when things go wrong. So inherently, we're seeing those cases and and i think what's needed probably is a feedback loop where we can and that's part of what we're doing and hope part of what we want to achieve in the longer term is to try and feed some of that back so that you know we can create a feedback loop whereby some of these lessons are learned and picked up because we don't we, we know direct payments is the right option for many many people but we need a system that allows better assessment i think better a better ability to things up earlier so that they don't spiral into bigger issues well absolutely i mean talking about it from a practical point of view we get a phone call about somebody who's having problems with a pa i'm, I'm using this generically it could be mm-hmm. you know an issue over a redundancy and how to be managed because the individual's going into full-time residential care or it could be that actually the employee's just not turning up anymore and we've discovered that they're still getting paid for some reason there can be all sorts of, of reasons that we get those calls. What we're going to need to do is we're going to need to dive into the detail. What's gone on here? Now, the trouble is when we're dealing with somebody um, who lacks capacity and isn't able to engage or willing to engage or their mental health at this point is such that they just disengage from everybody, we cannot do anything to protect them. We can't take instructions from them. Now, what we will always do as advisors is try and find out if we can get this information from somewhere. If we can't talk to the employer directly, do they have an advocate who knows any information? Often advocates struggle with the same problem, frankly. If they can't get instructions, they can't help us either. We will ask if there are any family members around. We'll ask if there are any other PAs who know more of the circumstances. We will do everything we possibly can. But your ideal scenario is that you've had a really great support organisation who thoroughly understand that individual's care plan and support needs and has some contact with the PAs and can really help them, you know, thrive and they can help them 
address these problems directly. When there's nobody else to step in, that's when we hit problems because we can try and give you all the solutions in the world. It's no good if we can't get at the facts. It's no good if we can't put something in place to then communicate it to the employees. Absolutely. And, and I think also it, it should be acknowledged that, like we've seen, that there is, there is a framework to identify suitable people to manage. And, and we hear quite often, don't we, there isn't anybody else. There isn't anyone else who can manage. There just simply isn't anybody who can do it. You know, the, going way back, the, the CARE Act talks about three options, really, a traditional service, a direct payment, and this third way, an in individual service fund. It's taken years for that to kind of, the idea is fermented for a long time. There are lots of areas where that pilots are actually happening now. And the idea of an individual service fund is that agencies can provide support for somebody in a flexible way, mirroring what a direct payment would provide. They can choose their own PAs and the support they want in the way they want, but they don't manage and that the organisation holds the money for them and, and manages it around that person. So there is, in theory, on paper, a third way that should account for these kind of cases, you know, it is, you know, it takes a difficult decision to say to someone, you know, we don't think it's suitable for you to have a direct payment. But actually, that would be a much easier decision. He said, but in light of that, here's this other option. And, you know, the hope is that those options will present themselves, which will allow, you know, more people who can benefit from DP to benefit without. And those that perhaps, you know, can't have a tradition, don't want the traditional service or, or uh, circumstances don't lend themselves to traditional service have another option. But I think what what we do need to do is remind what local authorities need to do is is is, is be aware as in the Zenonos case that there is a potential liability if they do let these cases slide um and just yeah emphasize better assessment and we'll we'll keep plugging away advising our policyholders as we do um but i guess rachel we need to yeah what do we do with this information what, how, how, do we, how do we move forward from our, from our position? Spread the word. Spread the word, absolutely. You know, spread the word. Whether or not there needs to be a change to policy or a change to legislation, I, I, I've got to be honest, I, I don't know what the answer is because I don't like the, the idea that we should take away anybody's right to employ PAs purely because they struggle to operate in a way that otherwise a business would. Yeah, and I think, and I think, I, I think it's there. I think the framework's there. I think what's interesting is it's about applying the legislation that's already there. But that's really the message, I think. Because if, as I say, if you if you read section thirty three and thirty two of the Care Act, and you read the direct payment regs, it is all there. Um, I just don't think it's always operating. I mean, it's quite a bold thing to say on a on a, on a podcast. I don't know if anyone's listening, but I, I don't think it's operating always as it should and i think what's fascinating why we have a unique position is because we advise local authority and support organizations and policyholders you specifically on a case-by-case -case basis see the detail and we go out and talk to more generically you know from our, from my role perspective about what what's best practice so we just have a unique viewpoint about what we see and i think from iog's perspective independent living group and iog support with our advice notes and with you know, the work we do, I think, you know, that's, you know, while we're on the topic, something we should, we should be able to talk about. And I think certainly in some of the uh, meetings and events we attend, I think we, we should probably raise these issues and why these podcasts are really important, because we are talking about the big issues. And I think this is one of them.
And the more confident people are, local authorities are with these issues and sport organisations, the less likely, I think, the more confident they'll be to make the tough decisions, whether that be maybe it's not appropriate for you or we need to be a bit more forceful about finding a suitable person and actually assessing their genuine suitability and not, as in the case you've highlighted, perhaps maybe you know, putting it down on paper with no real substance because it's risky. Well, we did start these podcasts saying that we were going to tackle some of the really challenging topics of um, direct payments and where we find that we have the challenges in trying to give the advice that we do. We've tackled all sorts of really, really in-depth and, and troublesome problems. So it'd be quite nice, I guess, to move on to our new season where I think we're going to start lightening things up, aren't we? We are, yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll um, look at a lot of the more basic topics, things like the national minimum wage, things like disciplinaries, things like what is insurance for a direct payment recipient, individual employer. Um, but most excitingly, we're going to engage in it and, and uh, deal and, and bring into the podcast the independent living group community of individual employers, some of the steering groups to come and talk to us about their experience and put us, they're going to, well, they're going to put us um, on the spot, I think, Rachel. So that'll be, <laughs> that'll be good. It's going to be really interesting to have the perspective of somebody who actually does manage a direct payment. Let's get somebody else in. We've, we've been talking from our point of view as professionals, coming at it from different uh, sides of things. You from direct payments, me from employment law. It's going to be lovely to actually hear from somebody who is right there in the thick of it, managing a direct payment themselves and hear their experiences. Absolutely. Can't wait. Okay, brilliant. Well, um, I guess there's nothing left for me to say, but um, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. The content of this podcast is for general advice only. For specific cases, always seek legal advice.